This is Corkscrew Convo's Another Theme Park Podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And we're here today to talk about theme parks, roller coasters, barbecue, the theater, roller coaster museums, and everything else under the sun in its time. But first, let's get that disclaimer out of the way. The views, opinions, and information expressed during the following presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent organizations affiliated with those individuals. Boom. Next. DJ, we have a very special episode planned. Isn't that right? We do. Um, this, I feel like our episodes are getting better and better. We've had uh, a great guest in the past, Coaster Bro from Coaster Cuzzies, and even after having Coaster Cuzzies on, you know, our, our, our other episodes are, are, are getting better as we, as we move along, and um, I'm loving having these guests, and I feel like it's time for another guest, uh, and you kind of hinted at who that is. Maybe we shouldn't spill the beans too quickly. Well, that is assuming no one read the podcast title. <laughs> uh, yes, you have a point there. So let's build a little bit of anticipation. And let's do that by talking about our coaster of the episode. And that is a roller coaster that opened in 1923 because it is our 23rd episode. DJ, what coaster is that? This is a very famous coaster, I would say, in the music world. Uh, there's a lot of history in a specific city uh, where this coaster was located originally. It is no longer there, unfortunately. We're going to Memphis, Tennessee, a city quite close to where I live currently at the moment. Uh, but we're going over to Liberty Land, uh, a park that I believe is no longer in operation at all. Now it, it closed down in 2005 along with this roller coaster. Uh, but that is the Zippin' Pippin', which is... You guessed it, dear listener. Elvis Presley's favorite roller coaster. Did you see that one coming? <laughs> That's quite a tagline. Uh, I've been to Memphis before. I uh, went down to their sort of Riverwalk area where they let you sort of walk right up next to the Mississippi River. I mean, Memphis is a great city. There's great barbecue, great music, of course. There's Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, I almost sort of fell into that song. It's a it's a city that has its own song. Don't so, forget Beale Street. Don't forget oh, the world's yes. largest bash, Bass Pro Shop. It's yeah. either the world's largest or the world's largest pyramid or North America's. I can't remember, but there's a Bass Pro Shop inside of it. Yeah, it's a huge pyramid right on the Mississippi. There's a lot of interesting things in Memphis, home of the Memphis Tigers of that university. But they also, they had a very historic wooden coaster that opened in 1923, and that's Zippin' Pippin'. Unfortunately, you didn't mention it, Liberty Land has since gone the way of the dodo, and they closed in 2005, but DJ, Zippin' Pippin' in some form lives on. It definitely does, and like you said, it opened in 1923, this is our 23rd episode, so every episode we've been doing this, 20, episode 24, we're going to look at 1924, so on and so forth. Uh, but this is a kind of a, a weird one, Chris, because we were talking about this earlier, and uh, you had said, oh, it still does exist. It's in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I said, eh, kind of. Uh, it is technically in existence in a park in Green Bay. Uh, the interesting thing to note here is that it's a replica of the mm. original Zip and Pippin. So I believe it opened in 2011, uh, so much newer, not as old as 1923. Uh, and of course... You know, if you talk to seasoned roller coaster enthusiasts, they'll probably tell you, oh, it's not the same as Zippin' Pippin'. Well, obviously, it's a whole different ride, but it is a replica. Um, and so it's cool that that sort of piece of history is living on 
in a sense, you could say. It's it's kind of like flying turns at Knobles, in a way. Yeah, I, I was very surprised because I don't know where I learned it, but I thought before we did this research on rcdb.com, I thought that it was a roller coaster that was moved when Liberty Land closed, but it's just a, a clone of that coaster, and that's very interesting. And it actually, um, this new one in Bay Beach Amusement Park in Green Bay, Wisconsin, it used uh, uh, many of the trains and much of the hardware on the former Thunder Eagle roller coaster, which was in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee at Race World. Um, this was a roller coaster that was right there on the, on the main stretch highway in Pigeon Forge. Uh, I think it's the only roller coaster in Pigeon Forge outside of Dollywood when it was well, in operation. Well, there's a, there's a kiddie coaster out there, I think, but uh, was this okay. the roller coaster that was where the island is now? Yes. Yes, okay. I believe so. Um, and I don't think it operated very long. Um, but yes, you, you are correct. It's where the island is now. Um, it, I don't think it was called the island before. I'd have to look. But I, I, I do know about this ride. And it's cool that a ride that uh, is envisioned from something that's so old was also able to um, pull something from another ride and it didn't just go to the wayside. So love to see when things like that happen. Uh, you have to wonder um, who really knows at Zip and Pippin at Green Bay if it was related to the original. They do have a sign out front, but that is a story that we could go deeper into. Um, it's a story about history, um, but I think we've got a more interesting take on history, specifically roller coaster history this episode. You know, it's funny that you mention roller coaster history because, I mean, the listeners know we like history. We like learning about the past. I have a piece of a roller coaster from the past. We talked about that in uh, the defunct coaster draft episode. But there is a roller coaster museum in the works in Texas, and it's going to be the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives and DJ. You know, we said it's a special episode. We're actually about to have an interview with Chris Robery. We are. Chris is with the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives uh, down in Texas. He'll talk a little bit more about that, but we're happy to have him on. And uh, I think I hear him coming in right now. Let's get into it. So as we were teasing in the beginning of this episode, we do have a very special guest with us. Um, I would say this guest who is with us, uh, not only with his own track record, but also uh, the organization he's representing, uh, carries a lot of history. Uh, we've been very fortunate in how many episodes we're in that we've been able to add some history to every episode doing these different uh, uh, roller coasters, depending on what year we're, we're talking about per episode. So episode 20, we featured something from 1920. And so... Now we are here, and we are with a very special guest, Mr. Christopher Roberry. Uh, he is with the National Roller Coaster Museum. Yes, that is right. The National Roller Coaster Museum, dear listener. Wow. This is a real thing. It should be a real thing. And we want it to be a real thing for many years to come. Welcome, Chris. Welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you guys for having us on the show. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to learning more about the museum. Uh, but first, I want to know a little bit more about you. So, Mr. Chris Robery, what's your story? <laughs> How much time and hard drive space do we have? <laughs> I've got a two terabyte drive right here. Uh, awesome. <laughs> Bring a couple expansion ports because here we go. 
So uh, my whole story is I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, a beautiful place to live. It was really nice. Uh, Always used to be afraid of roller coasters when I was a child, just had an irrational fear of them. So my dad uh, decided one day we went to our grandma's company picnic. She worked for the city of Santa Clara. So every summer we go to Great America. And one year he had just had enough. And he said, you know what? You're going to ride this and you're going to enjoy it. And uh, being the son of a sheriff uh, with weapons around, you were always like, yes, sir. No problem. <laughs> so <laughs> we, uh, he put me on the uh, Schwarzkopf shuttle loop there, which was tidal wave at the time. And wow. about halfway through that launch, I realized these rides are actually really freaking fun. Mm. So <laughs> literally a second into it. Just about a second into it, my fear <laughs> went away of, oh, my gosh, there's no over-the-shoulder restraint. What's going to happen? This can't be right. And then I realized, no, these are actually quite a bit of fun. And the rest of the day, I was knocking out all the other really, at wow. the time, for me, terrifying rides. So I got to ride my Intamin first-generation freefall, the Edge. I rode my first quadruple looping coaster, the Demon, and got my first inverted coaster, which was Top Gun. Uh, which was the right. B&M invert that had just opened. We waited an hour for wow. it. Wow. And it was so worth it. <laughs> it was it was so cool. That's uh, crazy I, that your first experience was upside down too. Usually that's kind of an outlier for people. I had been on the the Grizzly, but I really don't consider that like that's a the Woody out there, but that thing mm-hmm. is so tame and it really didn't it wasn't a true real thrill ride. Like it was designed to be a family ride. The tidal wave Man, Schwarzkopf's, they, they hit you hard. Yes. <laughs> and But they hit you in that right way, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was actually did a poll on the NRCMA social, and Schwarzkopf's were number two for what was your first looping roller coaster, only coming behind Arrow. Wow. So wow. that was, I, I was pretty happy to see that because I know that's where so many of our journeys started. Yeah, my first loop was actually... Uh, shockwave at King's Dominion. <laughs> it was quite a first time going upside down because I was standing up and uh, maybe it wasn't the newest roller coaster, but I, I figured there's one loop in it. I'm going to go upside down eventually. Why not just make it this one? And, and Shockwave continues to have uh, a special place in my heart, even though it's no longer with us. Boy, do I have something to tell you then. Sorry to interrupt you, Dalton. No, we fine. have one of the lead cars from Shockwave at the museum. Oh my goodness. So when you come out here, you're going to be able to have the opportunity to touch. There it is, your very first looping coaster, and there it is represented in the museum. So Dalton, what was your first looper? Sorry, I think Chris is getting over the fact that the the Roller Coaster Museum actually has this. Uh, (laughs) I'll let let it sit there for a second while I tell you. Uh, Mine was actually the Patriot at Worlds of Fun, a B&M looper. Um, in, invert. Um, it's really funny though. I had ridden roller coasters since I think I was in the second grade. Kind of the same story. Like my aunt had said, "You're gonna, you're gonna do this. Like you have to enjoy it. Like you're a crazy wild kid. There's no <laughs> way you can't enjoy this." And I'm like, "Okay." Uh, Might have cried a little bit until I got on it, but you know, after the chain lift, it was great. Um, but I didn't go upside down until middle school, so sixth grade, because I was so afraid that I would um, have like some nausea or something going on, uh, embarrass myself. Um, and I still, this day I get motion sick really easily. Um, it's gone away a little bit as I've gotten older, but now, you know, I'll do whatever, but that was the main thing. And once I did Patriot, you know, I was kind of like, okay, like Mm -hmm. I could do anything else at this point. So yeah. Fun. Yeah, definitely. And it was really interesting. I actually, uh, 
had a broken ankle when I rode that, so I had a full cast on my leg, and they let me ride. I don't know if they should have on an <laughs> invert coaster, but here we are. You're still walking. It's fine. St- still walking. But but back to the car story, and 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 really, why we were we were kind of asking you everything else you've done. I mean, you you've. You've been involved in the amusement industry, right? After that, I mean, you've gone beyond just where you, where you have been with riding coasters. I mean, that was a love, but you've been around the industry, and, and I know you've had other history with media and that sort of thing. And so, getting on a podcast is pretty easy for you. Yes. Uh, so, uh, after my uh, finally revelation that rides were fun, you know, I still was a fan of them. It was you know the very you know mid to late '90s, so there really wasn't that internet culture around it just yet. Uh, eventually I kind of fell in love again with the, uh, with the industry, got a job in Santa Clara for a few seasons to do that sort of summer gig type of thing. And then eventually went on to start my own blog, great American thrills, still around, just not really doing a whole lot with it right now for reasons that we'll talk about here in a second. And it slowly eventually led to myself partnering with Nicholas Laskwich with American coaster enthusiasts, uh, to create the TV show lost parks in Northern California. And we just put it up on YouTube, didn't think much of it, thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to do for the region. And it turned out people really connected with their history. And we just found all these old, either abandoned amusement parks or where parks used to be, told the story about them, and then found any pieces of them that were still left. And we were six for six. Every episode that we did, we found at least one little item that was still around from these parks, some of which had been gone for over a century. Wow. The best part was when we had parks that people actually remembered and we could interview them. That was always an honor Mm. because you get that firsthand experience and you could tell the passion that was behind them. Even for people that just visited once, they still had that, you know, implanted in their head. Do you have any tears, any tearing moments? Yeah, there were there were quite a few teary moments. Uh, there isn't an, uh, an unaired episode actually where we have a, a I'll call her a very young lady who unfortunately uh, passed away recently, Zoe Del Nutter. She experienced the 1939 Golden Gate International Exposition, and just to be able to interview her and have that memory that will live on forever because of that, that's really special, mm-hmm. and that's something you really don't get to do that often. At the same time that we're doing the Lost Park show. I'm working in radio, so hence the ability to talk endlessly <laughs> for no apparent reason whatsoever. And it was news radio, so it was yes. all talking. Yes. You were lucky if you Excellent. got a commercial. <laughs> and eventually, we've been doing the Lost Park show for about three years, and Nicholas Robert and I had decided, you know what, why don't we do a special? Let's do a, a special on aero development. They were in Mountain View, which was near where we lived, and we thought this would be cool, 30-minute special. Well, then we started doing the research and all of a sudden we kind of came to that conclusion that this thing was way more than just a 30 minute special. It wouldn't do it justice. So we decided let's do something crazy. Let's do a full documentary. And we went to Ace and Ace said, absolutely, let's go ahead and do this. And it's American Coaster Enthusiasts for our listeners that don't know. Yes. And so the American Coaster Enthusiasts said, sure, let's go ahead. Let's do this. And 14 months later from just initial idea to final product, we had a full documentary that just recently crossed over a million views. Wow. And we're just so proud of that. And just to see that it's had the impact that it's had since then, I think there's been sort of a renaissance of people who appreciate the older rides a little bit more, not necessarily because they're smooth, but because of the history behind them. The fact that they were bent by hand using slide rules. (laughs) 
you know, nowadays you can go into Planet Coaster and design something that is RMC-esque. But back then, to design a six-foot section of track, it could have taken two days of processing in the computer. And these were high-end computers at the time to be able to figure out how to do that. And you're still doing all the stuff manually in the you know pipe shop. And I find myself when I when I do that myself, like Planet Coaster or No Limits, whatever it is, I'm always like, okay, how would this manufacturer do it? But imagine being Arrow back then, no one did it. I mean, you're kind of just like okay, you're writing the book. Yeah, you don't you don't have any reference really. Absolutely. So you're the one that's going to be the trendsetter. So that was such a cool experience. Not only to be able to cross the country, but to hear all the stories of how Arrow personally influenced so many in the industry. Ron Toomer always wrote back. If you sent a letter to Ron, he would eventually get back to you and he would be very personalized about it. it that's so cool. And I think that's something that we kind of miss in our sort of celebrity-esque type world now that you just assume that, you know, you'll never get a response back because they're too busy. Ron made sure of that. And I can't tell you how many people he brought into this industry just by writing him a letter back when he was a kid. It's crazy. And we're having a, a bit of a history moment here on this episode. Give us real <laughs> quick, a, uh, who is Ron Toomer for people sure. that don't know? It's what happens when you get an Arrow fan to talk. He just keeps talking, <laughs> it's right? It's totally so, good. So, so many of our listeners, they just listen to this because it's fun. And there's others that are really into it. We have pretty, a wide gamut. So. so Ron Toomer is the first actual engineer who worked for Arrow Development. Originally, there were four people that started the company. None of them were actually had any true engineering experience from college. But Ron had a degree in engineering. So he designed some of the most iconic rides ever. His first job was taking water flow measurements in Pirates of the Caribbean before it opened. And his first coaster that he ever designed was the runaway mine train at Six Flags Over Texas. That was his first one. And it's pretty darn good. It's held up quite well. So he designed all the rides, you know, pretty much all the way up to the very end of the company in 2001. So he, you know, when you ride an arrow, you're riding a Ron Toomer designed attraction. He was the Alan Shilkey of his day. If you know Alan Shilkey from Rocky Mountain Construction, Ron was the Alan Shilkey of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Alan Shilkey of Arrow. And exactly. Yeah. Alan eventually came to work for Arrow and designed two of their rides before they went bankrupt. <laughs> so you see just that lineage and how it continues. It's wonderful. Right. So eventually, after that film, uh, it got a lot of industry attention. And the good folks at Six Flags Over Texas said, hey, would you like to come work in communications? And I thought, you know what? I've never lived in Texas before. Uh, it's probably like California. It's a little bit warmer, right? Should be fine. So packed up all my bags, moved from the Bay Area and uh, moved here to Arlington, Texas, where I'm uh, still work or still at today. Uh, currently not necessarily working for Six Flags Over Texas, uh, but working with Ride Entertainment. So we present a lot of the European ride manufacturers uh, and then working for a, a local municipality down here as well. Yeah, Ride Entertainment, a great company. They're behind uh, really kind of a broker role, if I'm correct in saying that, for uh, Gertschlauer, um, a, a lot of the star flyers that you see around the large tower swings, uh, a couple others that I'm missing out, I'm sure. Oh, uh, they also do the uh, Sky Coaster, right? That's right. So those are the those are, are the really big ones, but there's quite a few other smaller companies there. And not necessarily just a ride broker. The company also does maintenance. So right, if you want right, to right. You know, do some work on a ride, 
you call up Ride Entertainment, and we have an entire maintenance division that's just dedicated to making sure your ride's running at peak condition. And also some operational things as well, right? Is there something you manage something in New York? It's like a carousel or in that area? Am I mm-hmm. my ride? There's on actually that? there's several attractions that we operate in the New York City area specifically, but the one that's I guess best known as the Sea Glass Carousel, which is this beautiful, very unique style carousel in Battery Park. Wow, that's awesome! So you've you've really gone from from really everything. You've you've gone from uh, someone who started out as a fan, uh, really historian, if I may say. Uh, not not trying to stroke your ego, but that I mean, what you're describing, you are a historian to write all that stuff. So that kudos to you. Uh, also working in the industry and then working for someone who supplies the industry. I don't know what else you can do at this point other than maybe help out a roller coaster museum. Yeah, it's that would be the next logical step. That's it. <laughs> Just about. Well, actually, throw in also that uh, I worked with Irvine Andre Engineering, which do all the control systems. I didn't know that. For the rides as well. So I was their <laughs> communications coordinator for a bit wow. there, too. Uh, great group of folks out there. So if you wanted to know, like, how do rides think? Because there's all sorts of logic and safety controls. Someone's got to build that system. Well, that's Irvine Andre Engineering. So you set a little IOE sticker on your ride. You know you're in for a great experience because they're fans, too. So they understand how to do things that make the experience better. Great example was they took the code for Dueling Dragons, which no longer exists at Universal. It was a dueling inverted roller okay, coaster. Okay, the fact that you can take the code from a roller coaster, hold on. Yes. That's, okay, all right, we're, yes. we're past so, that, okay. Uh, Brian Andre, <laughs> who, uh, who started the company with his wife, Anne, uh, Brian originally worked on Dueling Dragons. So he was able to modify the code that he had written for Dueling Dragons and place it onto Racer 75 at King's Dominion. So when you notice that all of a sudden that those cars were doing sort of like a jockeying thing, kind of like Dueling Dragons used to do, that's because that's how that ride is now living on, thanks to Brian's dedication and his just attention to detail. That's incredible. My goodness. (laughs) You're just a nugget of information. Every time I talk with you, Chris, it's like, all right, here's this random thing you never thought about. And you just spin it. You just keep going with it. Oh, of course. That's just how I roll. I love I'm it. <laughs> a veritable sponge of useless information until it becomes useful. It's extremely useful for a coaster podcast. Oh, yes. So well, we, then we thank, thank goodness you. we're where we are right now, because otherwise it's at the complete sacrifice of a social life. Let me tell you. So you're in northern Texas, which, by the way, if you can you even call it northern Texas, because Texas is a huge state. Living where you live compared to San Antonio, totally different experience. And then there's East and West Texas and there's Houston and everything else. Um, how close is that close to the National Roller Coaster Museum? Is is that no. in Texas? Where, <laughs> where Where is this museum at? Tell us a little bit about that. As as I sit right now, the museum is approximately a five and a half hour drive west. Oh. And by the way, you're still not out of the state of Texas driving straight west. <laughs> Uh, the the joke that they say here is that if you fly from Dallas Fort Worth to California, say Los Angeles, and you are halfway there, you could still be flying in Texas because of that little spit of land that continues all the way to El Paso. Wow! So <laughs> it's a big state. Yeah. The good news is it's a stunningly beautiful drive because you go from the almost the woodsy part of North Texas into sort of that prairie land, into the hills, and eventually up into the high desert. There's all sorts of different, you know, ecological locations that you're going through that it's really cool to watch, especially during the day. At night, not so much. 
But in the day, it is stunning, and the sunrises are to die for in West Texas because it's so flat. But the museum itself is actually located in Plainview, which is kind of right in between Lubbock and Amarillo. Okay. Yep. In West Texas. And it's right next door to Larson International. So if you know of like the Super Loop rides mm-hmm. or the uh, Tilt a Whirls or some of the Freefall Towers, those all come out of Larson International and they just happen to be right next door. They're the best neighbors you could ever have for a museum. Super Loopers, those are those literally just a big loop that you see at carnivals. Some parks have them. Six Flags is the one that always comes to mind. Most mm-hmm. of our listeners have probably seen one, I would wager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So either jazz, either a carnival and a version, world, for sure. Yeah, and who hasn't been on a tilt a world before? Right. So Larson owns the entire Selner, which is the company that used to make those in the 1920s catalog. So that's how they're able to make tilt a worlds, and they're still making them to this day. The one in Belmont Park is actually a bunch of ice cream cones huh. instead of like the tradition. <laughs> it's really cute. Instead yeah. of the apples, I guess is kind of what they they look like. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So it's out there by Larson, uh, and. I mean, is this is it off of a major highway? Because that's what I've I've always wondered. I've known about the museum. I I personally knew kind of where it was at. Um, is there signage on the road? What is the what is that experience like? So it is off of Interstate 27, which runs up and down between Amarillo and Lubbock. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of signage yet because the museum isn't actually open to the public. In fact, it's okay. still very much under construction. But once every two years, when we have the American Coaster Enthusiast West Texas Roundup event, you get to see three different parks. You get to see Joyland in Lubbock. You get to see Wonderland in Amarillo. And breakfast on that second day is right there at the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. So you get a chance to see everything as it's being built before it opens to the public. Oh, very cool. So it's not open. We can see it. Once every two years is what you've told us as of now. In person. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a great social media, which, by the way, quick plug for you, National Roller Coaster Museum. Probably one of my favorite social media accounts right now. Every time, whoever runs it, I'm assuming it's you, Chris, whoever runs it it always has me on the edge of my seat. Like, (laughs) what? I think today, uh, what is it? We're March 11th is when we're recording this. There was something about Tennessee Tornado talking about a different ending in Dollywood. And I'm like... Different ending? What? Yeah, I, like, I have to know. So I'm, I have, I'm looking forward to it's, learning it's more so about good. that. It's so good. And the that, stunning photography, I'm assuming you do that, Chris. Yes. But how, uh, did, the, how, did, I mean, how did all of this start? <laughs> Quite by accident, what I think most volunteer things do. I'm not paid for any of that. This is just what my way of giving back to the industry that has given so much to me. It gave me the opportunity to live. It gave me the opportunity to move out here. And... It really started with just an idea. So uh, my friend Gary Slade, who runs Amusement Today, is, which is the big uh, publication. If you want to know it, anything about what's going on in the amusement industry, get yourself a subscription to Amusement Today. That's not even a plug. It's really the, just premier, yes. the premier news source of print for sure and digital, but a lot of suppliers as well. They get a lot of news out of that. If you want to know what's going on in the industry, boy, Amusement Today is the only place to get that uh, for sure. So Gary is one of the board members uh, with the National Roller Coaster Museum. And I had an idea. I thought, you know what would be really fun? If we took really pretty pictures of some of the cars out there. Because I had only been once before for West Texas Roundup. And Gary thought, okay, that's cool. Why don't you come out the next time that, that I'm going out there? Because Gary goes out there sometimes once a month to drop off more material that he's been able to find. 
you know, loads up the truck, Gary, loads up the trailer. Knowing Gary, that sounds like something exactly like he would do. I, I can <laughs> see that. That that really doesn't surprise me. Yes. <laughs> so we went out there and we took these beautiful portraits uh, of these rides, of these ride vehicles. And they're all on the National Roller Christian Museum Facebook, Twitter, Instagram page. So you can take a look at them, see what you think. Uh, we, so we started compiling them and realized, you know, this is really cool. Why don't we keep doing this more often? And it sort of made me think, you know what? What if I helped out with your social media? You know, I've, I've done a lot of work with Over Texas, wrote, uh, won a Brass Ring Award for best social media in 2017. Why what, what's the Brass that? Ring real quick? Brass Ring is the uh, award, like the Oscars of the amusement industry. So it's given by the uh, IAPA, Amusement Industry Convention, huge thing. Right. And so IAPA gives out these brass rings for marketing, for food, for sales, everything you can think of. Worldwide, it's not, worldwide. It's not just the United States. It's, and so uh, we won it at Six Flags Over Texas in 2017. So I thought, you know, the museum is kind of out there, but I don't feel like a lot of people knew uh, enough about it or weren't excited enough about it. So when I went out there, they had just finished the Mark Moore wing, which is the big building that got there. The museum has started off very small because there wasn't a whole lot of donations at the time. And it's slowly been building upon that. So it went from just one tiny little building that was the archive room now to a, a little bit of a bit of a warehouse to store things. Then there were two more pieces of the warehouse that got put together. And now the Mark Moore wing, which is this huge two-story building along with the center building that houses the lobbies, the bathrooms, the special events area, and the passageway for the forklifts. So they just finished that and they laid out these four cars for me to take a photo of. It was a photographer's dream. You got this giant warehouse that's empty. It's dark. It was hot because the air conditioning wasn't installed yet and it was 90 degrees in Lubbock because it was during the summer. And we just kept going from car to car, just changing up the lighting and just made it look like those cool car posters that you would have in a garage. Like if you're right. a, you know, a gearhead, right. you used to have these like Lambo posters mm -hmm. or there's a Ferrari. But why can't we do this for coaster cars too? I can see the seventies Mustang GT like right there. <laughs> like you could definitely just swap it out. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we did. And ever since then, whenever I had a chance about once a quarter, I'll head up there, usually fly up there because I don't have time to take off from work and fly in. Gary will pick me up from the airport. We'll head up there first thing the next morning, wash all the vehicles, detail them, and then start taking photos of them. The taking of the photos takes no time at all. It's the washing and detailing of those yeah. cars that takes forever. But you know what? It's so cathartic because you're washing history and you're bringing it back to life. That is the coolest part to see that car come from, you know, it's a little, it's been sitting there, not really doing anything. And then to see it in that photo and it just pops because it's all nice and shiny and super slick. Oh, there is no greater feeling in the world. I have no problem washing that. Washing my own car, forget it. I'm taking <laughs> nope. it to the car wash. But <laughs> detailing these cars at the museum, totally down for it. Yeah, the, the tender love and care you're putting towards it because like you said, it's history. It could be back to who you were talking about, someone who who experienced this a long time ago. You know, they have memories with these rides. And so maybe you carry even a little bit of uh, responsibility maybe when you do this, that you don't maybe scratch the cars or that, that you're that you're very careful. I don't know what the detailing process of a roller coaster car looks like, it's but very I know I'm kind of finicky on my own car. Right. It's very similar to what you would do with a, a regular car because most of them are 
at least clear coated. So that's good. Mm. Some are not though, because some are just fiberglass. So there's other ones you have to be very, you know, decently careful with. And I also don't want to have to, if I do scratch a car, then I might be walking back five and a half hours <laughs> or like, you know, three weeks to get back home. So I really don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the, the other inspiration for it is you don't want to make sure that that thing's going to be sticking around and you're not going to be damaging it in any right, way. Right. The cool part is that most of those vehicles still work. So oh, yeah. if you have the, if you know where to hit something or to push something, the restraint systems still work on most of them that have them. Oh, that's cool. And, and the bogeys turn, I'm sure the, the, um, the chain lift mechanism underneath, I'm sure that flaps back and forth or the anti rollback is what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. That's interesting. Okay. Well, that's really cool, but I'm really looking forward to visiting the museum when it's open because we've seen these pictures that you've taken. We've heard about the effort that you put into taking these poster-like pictures of these cars, and I just have to wonder, something about the museum, how does the procurement process work? Like, does the park call the museum, or does the museum call the park, or, or something like that? So I'm glad that you brought up the, the procurement process because you're hearing me talk about the museum, but there's a whole board of directors behind that and a, and a slew of those, they're all volunteer. So there are folks that are working in the industry who are dedicated to bringing this museum to life as well. And the way it works can vary. So sometimes it can be a park that will reach out to the museum and say, we've got a, a ride vehicle or we have a full train would you like it and 99% of the time we're like absolutely let's by all means have it on the next flatbed or whatever you want to get in there and other times uh, we'll go out and specifically ask is this you know if this vehicle is going to be retired soon or if we know that there's the possibility that this ride may not necessarily be lasting much longer we'll reach out and say would you be interested in donating this to the museum so it can be preserved forever I think the the most exciting one that we've had was when Disneyland reached out to us wow, and said, we'd like to donate uh, one of the Matterhorn cars. And it's quite striking. Like, there it is. That's the first tubular steel roller coaster. It's not the first generation Matterhorn car, but it doesn't matter. It's a Matterhorn, it's a Matterhorn car. Matterhorn yeah. car. <laughs> don't see, you never see anything Disney in the wild outside of Disney yes, right. ever. Right. So to see it is, it's really, it's quite an honor. And it's such a rare opportunity. And this board of directors you talked about, I mean, these are people that um, not only love the industry, but some work in the industry, some work for suppliers in the industry. And so there's an interesting mix up there of people, I'm sure. Absolutely. And that's worked out really well because we keep our ears to the ground. You know, I'm not actually on the board. I'm just a volunteer. But the board is always listening to try and find that opportunity to either preserve something somewhere or or help out or get a donation that could potentially help keep the museum going or, you know, work towards a specific project, something like that. So one of the coolest things that we recently got was uh, help from Great Coasters International, Skyline Attractions, Larson International and Idlewild Park to come together to build this beautiful display for the old roller coaster trains. And it's a very dynamic setup. It looks like they're going down a drop right off the balcony. Oh, I've seen that picture. That is incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, this, really was, is. this was like brand new roller coaster track created 
like it's the I've seen the blueprints. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> you I mean, you could take that section of track and plop it into any ride today. That's got a 33 inch gauge, which is pretty much, you know, any roller coaster train, uh, Woody that is, and guess what? It's going to work fine. In fact, it'll probably be smoother than any other track God, out there. I'm learning they, so much. 33 inches. Okay, it. write that down, those of you at home. 33 <laughs> inches, the standard roller coaster gauge. At least for the old school PTCs. Okay. That should be the case because okay. that's what the roller coaster, roller coaster trains are. But again, GCI came in and built that track to spec. It is exactly the same thing that you would expect to see in a park. You didn't have to do that. But it's authentic and it looks so good, especially when you have the old Texas Cyclone section that the museum was able to preserve in 2005. And that had to sit off site in plain view until we were ready to put it in the museum. And when we were ready, our good friends at Amuse Rides came down all the way from Idaho <laughs> to put that thing in, to squeeze it in quite literally with inches to spare on both sides of that hallway. And this is like a 25 foot section of track. This thing isn't any slouch. And then be able to lift it up onto a steel plinth so it stands up above the rest of the museum. It's really stunning. And again, just shows how uniting the effort is to bring this museum to life. People that, that operate this equipment, you know, I'm always fascinated because what you and I would say, oh, mere inches, it always seems like no problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work. They, uh, people like that always make it work. That's a type of thinking I can never, I don't know if you learn that by just doing so many different things, but you know, even working around my house is difficult. So the fact that not only these people dedicate their time to do it, but that they found these people that can bring this stuff in, I, I always think is fascinating. It is certainly a special breed. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a favorite artifact in the collection? Because I actually, uh, for those of you at home, dear listener, I know Chris fairly well. Um, and I know the other Chris fairly well. Um, <laughs> but the other Chris doesn't know the other Chris fairly well. So what I'm getting at is I've asked you a few questions. Yep. I don't know, though, what your favorite artifact in the collection is because I don't think I've ever asked you that. That's such a tough question because it's really like a Sophie's choice. There's so everywhere you turn, there's always something else that just grabs your attention or you just say, wow, that's so cool. That's so special. That's so unique. I'm torn because I never actually got to ride either of the two that come to mind. The Matterhorn bobsleds are cool. And I really wish I have a photo of myself on them back in like 1998 and I was hoping it was the same number car, but sadly it wasn't. Because if it was, that would have been like a, a whole nother level. I had a hunch that might be it, just from how involved you were talking about <laughs> that. But but I'm going to have to say, just for the look, and because it was the first one that I shot with this new sort of uh, Kiyoshiro style shot, was that Wildcat car, that blue Wildcat car from Shorskov that came from Cedar Point. Oh, it just it has that cool car look to it. Mm -hmm. It, it really looks like lights. an actual vehicle, yeah. like an automobile. It does, except for, you know, when you look back and you say, oh, look, those are lap bars. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a little different. Uh, but that one is is pretty sentimental now for me. And I think also another one that I never got to ride, but it just came to life when I polished it up and, and put the lights on it. And that was Big Bad Wolf. Oh. Uh, we have the lead car from Big Bad Wolf and in fact, we actually have a whole train from Big Bad Wolf, but we've only got on display the lead car because the thing's so huge. <laughs> yeah. 
it just there was something about that shot that just it's so pretty and i can't put my finger on it i just think that it was just a perfect moment the lighting was just perfect and it cleaned up so nicely and then to find out that the restraint still worked 10 years later oh wow you push down the foot pedal and all of a sudden the The noise, well, yeah. Be careful that you don't lock yourself in. That ratchet, that ratchet noise. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's true. And that's the cool part is that if you've ever worked on an aero ride or you've been to on one, you know that sound. Yeah. Right. Like when, you, when that restraint comes down, you just know that specific sound. And there it was. After 10 years of not even moving. And I had to, you know, lift the, the thing up to clean it. And no problem. Wow. That's how good that engineering is. Well, this actually serves as the perfect segue as we ask our host, Chris, what his favorite artifact in the collection is. I have a pretty good idea of what he's going to say. Well, it's funny that he mentioned the other Chris. It's funny that he mentioned the Big Bad Wolf, because when I visited the the, the temporary exhibit of the museum when it was at Dollywood in 2013, I spent a lot of time just looking at all of the big, the big bad wolf artifacts that they had because they had the big marquee sign with the wolf itself. They had a console from the big bad wolf. They had the car there and a signed 25th anniversary sign. I think it was signed by Ron Toomer. Was that correct? Mm-hmm. And if you're, if uh, you've listened to past episodes, do you listen? You might know that. I never got a chance to ride Big Bad Wolf because I said, ah, I'll do it next year. Meanwhile, it was 2009 and, well, (laughs) I never got to ride it. (laughs) Big oof. And so it was was an important, it was a significant um, opportunity for me to just see that. I think they also had a cross-section of a rail there, too, uh, at the exhibit to just see these things again and think about where I was in 2009 and then where I was in 2013. And even looking back at it now in 2021, I wish I could have ridden Big Bad Wolf, but it was nice to see that it is living on at the museum. That was very nice to see. It's one of those crazy things that when you ever get a chance to visit, that no matter where you turn, it's a nostalgia trip for somebody. And for, you know, folks like us who get a chance to to visit parks or have visited parks in the past a lot of them there's the possibility that you could you know anywhere you look is going to be a ride you went on that's the seat that you sat Mm. in yeah it's a very real possibility it's a very visceral reaction too when you get that opportunity to to touch that because it's a piece of history for you it's not just a piece of history though for yourself but it's a piece of history for the entire industry that you happen to have this direct connection with, even if you just sat in it for three minutes, you still have that connection. That is to me is so special about the museum because there's not many other history places that have that effect on people. Right. Right. Most museums you go to, you know, the history is usually so old that it's just a lot of imagination or you've read about it. Uh, there might be a obscure case where, you know, somebody did experience, usually it's moments in history that are talked about. So, oh, they were happen to be there, you know, one in a million people, right? Or it's so far gone, it's thousands of years ago, we would never know. Uh, but we're dealing with something that a lot of people did have an impact on. 
And so that's an interesting point you bring up. Um, and I was kind of thinking about what my favorite artifact was. And I don't really know. And I, and I thought about this for a little bit. I wanted to say Orient Express. You guys have that car down there. Um, but I never, I was never on Orient Express. And the first time I visited Worlds of Fun, it was already gone. Uh, hmm. Like we talked about it in school. My friends wrote it. And then when I went there, I'm like, where's this ride? Oh, it's gone. <laughs> cool. Um, so I never got to experience it. So I can't really say that. I think there's a lot of like Kansas City pride in the Orient Express, which is really interesting. But so I can't say that. Um, so I had to kind of go back and say, okay, what have I been on? I think you all have a Thunderhead car from Dollywood. Yes. Um, I have been on that. I thought about saying that. It's a good ride. doesn't really have much memories to me, though. Um, they had the Wildcat car you talked about. I think the one I've chosen is the Mantis car from Cedar Point. Uh, mm. This was the stand-up at Cedar Point. It's no longer there. Well, it's halfway there. It's now Rougarou, which is a floorless conversion they've done to this ride to make it last a lot longer, more comfortable. The reason I chose Mantis, though, was because, A, it was my first stand-up. I was very excited to ride it because of that. And B, I actually have a friend gave to me a, a, a pin, kind of a pin that goes on your shirt or, or on your backpack or whatever, that says Banshee, which was the original name, the original concept name for Mantis at Cedar Point. So that's going to be my little tie-in there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Mantis. And I, I love, for some reason, you look at Mantis's car and it just screams the 90s. It's yes. the color scheme. It's the design of the logo, right? You look at Wildcat's car, you know what era that was, Big Bad Wolf. Mantis is pure, for some reason to me, mid-90s, Nickelodeon. I can't I can't explain it, but that's what Mantis is. And, and no, I, I just you're love You're spot that. on. I love that. And let me tell you, that thing, and this is kind of true of all the vehicles when we go in there to, to clean them up for photos. You don't realize when you ride these things how big they actually are that's a good point Something you don't ever take yeah. into consideration because you're just sort of sitting in that seat for a second and you don't realize that that's really only half the ride in some cases because there's so much of a substructure behind it but my goodness mantis was a beast to clean up <laughs> Woo. not because it was particularly dirty but just because it's so much bigger than you expect it to be and we we went through a lot of wax to make that thing look as good as we did <laughs> But it was absolutely worth it. It was also tough because B&M gave us a piece of track for that. Oh, and my. So when you look at it. <laughs> That's a big piece of track. <laughs> it is. Well, it's a it's a display piece of track. So it's only as long as the train itself. But oh, okay. they did it at such an angle to show just how much the ride could twist. And so when it's on display, it's tilted at a pretty severe angle if you're trying to, you know, to walk on it. So you can imagine me trying to wash it <laughs> with a bunch of slippery soap at a really tough angle, it was an adventure. We'll post the video later to our social media. <laughs> You'll send that over to us. And, yeah, there's yeah. You, nobody needs to see video of that. <laughs> so that's probably the most difficult thing or probably top five for you to clean. It sounds like it was, it was a difficult thing to do. But what do you believe is the most impressive artifact at the museum? Is there anything that stands out to you, whether it's a legacy, something that coaster nerds like us uh, would freak out about. I want to almost answer this for you and say it's probably the Matterhorn car. I, I'd say you're probably right, but I'm going to, there's all sorts of other artifacts that we're still working on. So you, there's, it's always a constant flow of, you know, what's the next artifact that could potentially come in. And it really does depend on where you're from. That's a great example with you said with worlds of fun. 
if you're from Kansas City and you see that Orient Express car, that's the most important thing in that entire museum. There's you know? a designer clothing line in Kansas City that has Orient Express as the design for a shirt. Like yeah, that's exactly. how much of a cult following it has. Exactly. If you are from Southern California or from the West Coast, it's the Disneyland Matterhorn car. If you're from Cedar Point, anything that's Cedar Point there, whether it be <laughs> that wins, <laughs> whether it be Mantis, whether it be Wildcat, whether it be uh, Avalanche Run slash Disaster Transport, and oh, it's yeah, you know a giant that. piece of tra- it's the heaviest exhibit that we have in terms of the actual track piece and car. So the car sits on the actual bobsled track. And it's one piece. And a bobsled track is basically this big metal half pipe, right? Exactly. And this is the big one because it was the two across seating as opposed to the smaller bobsled track, which was that inline seating, which is just one Mm. row straight back there. I think, though, the one that's going to get people talking the most, because the cars are obviously very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The blueprints are stunning. The amount of blueprints that we have and keep coming in are incredible. There's going to be just the archive room will have to at some point get expanded because there's so many of them out there. But I think the one that's going to get people talking so much is our special events area, which has a bar in it. Oh, so that bar was donated by our friends at Rocky Mountain Construction, and it is made entirely out of wood and steel from Mean Street at Cedar Point, <laughs> which was the wow. wooden roller coaster that was converted to a steel coaster called now called Steel Vengeance, which by many accounts from a lot of people is probably the number one steel roller coaster in the world. But the good folks up there in uh, North Idaho uh, looked at all that extra wood and said, you know what? That'd make a pretty good bar. So <laughs> That's the most RNC <laughs> thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they they. Uh, showcase the bar at the golden tickets in 2019 the golden ticket awards which are the amusement today oscars where they give out to different parks and different organizations for excellence in operations and other things and then they packed it up after that party shipped it down to Plainview, and now it sits inside its own special events area where you've got the mean streak bar all around you there's different examples of wood from different wooden roller coasters with little labels on them all around the walls there and to get into the special events area, you have to kind of slide across this big barn door. And it's made from leftover wood from the Texas Cyclone, which used to run in Astroworld. Wow, that's so cool. So it's all these little yeah. different things inside the museum that, that kind of add up. The wood on the mezzanine level in the big building, in the Mark Moore wing, that's all wood from Guazi that RMC donated to us. Because it was just going to get tossed out anyway. So it became the right. floor for the second floor of the museum. Are there plaques uh, denoting all of these little things? Or is there that inside? There absolutely okay. will be. Uh, okay. There are plenty of those plaques. And the, the one, Chris, this you're going to like this. The stairway to get up to the mezzanine has that wood from uh, Mean Streak as the floorboards. But the support, the main column that holds that stairway up is track from the Big Bad Wolf. I was just about to that ask was, about that. <laughs> that. That was the idea of Hunter Larson, who uh, works with Larson International. Shocker. Uh, he and his dad uh, run the company and uh, Hunter is an incredible engineer and he had the idea of, well, why don't we just use this track to, you know, hold the staircase up? And the board said, absolutely. And that's probably been one of the bigger photo ops, I think, is to be able to take your photo next to a piece of Big Bad Wolf's track. Now, the question after that is if you walk down that staircase, does that count 
posthumously as a credit for the Big Bad Wolf? Uh, I'm going to say no, only because you didn't go anywhere. And if you're sliding down that thing, then we've, there's a problem. So, no, I don't think that, that you can get any credits. But, boy, you could probably get about 50 or 60 of them just by saying if you sat in the cars. <laughs> wow. Sorry to our enthusiasts. If you're going to the National Roller Coaster Museum, that is not how you get the Big Bad Wolf credit. No, that, you're gonna, that that's one that you will never be able to get again, unfortunately. <laughs> so if you already had it, great. If you don't. I'm sorry you're out of luck, but happily come out and, and check out the, the ride vehicles out there and learn about the history of the suspended coaster. So speaking of the collection, I mean, you've already said so many things that are a part of it, so many wow moments. But well, thinking about the future of the museum, what do you think the museum would most be interested in acquiring in the future? That's a great question. I'm not sure. Yeah, the board has the the ability to sort of go after what might potentially be a good acquisition for them and for the museum. Hmm. That's a, give me a second. Here. It sounds sure. like that's a tough it, question. It sounds like, and I could be wrong here. I haven't, I've have not been there yet. Uh, there's not a lack. Maybe there is a lack. I don't know. Maybe you'll say, yes, there is. There aren't many, if at all, international artifacts. Are there? I mean, technically, all of these, not all of them, but a lot of these rides are made in different countries. Um, but is there any that sticks out to you that's actually from another country? Not to my knowledge. And I think this is just me, just pure conjecture here, that it's expensive to move things across oceans. Right. Yeah. And so you've got, it, it's tough to be able to find a park A that's retiring something across the pond, so to speak. And it would be tough to be able to bring it to the museum just because it is quite expensive to do, let's be honest. And the museum relies solely on donations. We are, you know, the museum is still not open to the public yet. So there's no, you know, revenue coming in from people. Just no endowment or anything like that. There's like no you'd see in, you know, a typical no, I mean, it, to have an endowment would be like the greatest yeah. thing for the museum. But no, no government funding either. No, no grants or anything like that. Nope. No government funding at all. No grants and a lot of sacrifice. Like I said, Gary Slade goes out there as often as he can in his truck. And, you know, it's not cheap to drive that much. That's equivalent to driving from Plainview to Dallas a little bit about from Anaheim to San Francisco Oof. perspective. Wow. It's, it's a long, it's a long drive and you're carrying a lot of stuff there. It's incredible to see all of the sacrifice that has been made to, to make this museum happen. You know, it's been a long road, but gosh, we're so close. That's the, the most exciting part is that we're right. so much closer to opening now and seeing when people get out there to see the museum in person, I think it finally clicks for a lot of people. It did for me when I saw it for the first time in person, it finally clicked and dawned on me and, and I realized, okay, now I get it. It's a lot easier when you can see it for yourself as opposed to seeing pictures of it or reading about it. It, it really sort of hammers home what the true mission of it is. And so, I mean, is there anything we've talked about that? Is, is there, is there one thing maybe that, that you would like to see? Like, is there, is there one specific thing where you're like, if this ever retires, I would like to get that. Or is there something that hasn't retired yet, but when it does, this is something I would like personally for the museum to have. I would love for the museum to be able to get an invert car, a lead invert car, oh, okay. something that they do not have yet. 
they came close with Islands of Adventure oh. when they retired Dueling Dragons, but that... That's really the only chance at this point, I that assume. That is the only one that, is, that has gone so far. Right. So I, I wish all the inverts, of course, much love and, and much life going forward. I think an invert car would be really spectacular. I take that back. Technically, we do have one. It's Volcano, the Blast Coaster. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Am I hitting all the fuels again, Chris? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you are. It's the only rollback credit that I have is on Volcano. <laughs> That's a good one to get a rollback on. That's oh, for yes. sure. Yes. <laughs> so we have that one, but I'd love to see a B&M four across in there too. Mm. Uh, Bolliger and Mabillard, they built Mantis at Cedar Point. Uh, they built all the inverted coasters that are four across. They built Banshee at King's Island. Uh, That's uh, my favorite. All the, Batman, all the Batman clones at all the Six Flags parks. So I would love to be able to see that there. I'm excited to see when we start placing things in the museum to see the the evolution of like the stand-up car because we have the, the museum has the car for Iron Wolf, which became Apocalypse at uh, Six Flags America. Mm. And so we have that car and then we can have Mantis sitting right next to it. So you can see how the cars evolved. And I believe the plan is to retro restore the Iron Wolf car to its original condition. So it's the old school oh, yeah. restraints and the old school seats so that you can see how they improved upon that design oh that'll be really interesting to see i was about to ask if the iron wolf car that you have is still dressed as apocalypse it is okay it is still dressed as apocalypse well a, a quick question about the collection something just popped into my head um are there any artifacts from son of beast not that I can think of, no. Oh, I know where he's going with this. <laughs> I know where he's going with well, this. Well, because um, I have a piece of track from Son of Beast. Oh, my goodness. There it is. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I keep it close by whenever I record or something. I mean, it's part of my <laughs> museum. Where can he insert it? <laughs> <laughs> I always talk about it because uh, when Kings Island was selling them, I think in the fall of 2012, I said... Oh my goodness, that's another coaster I never got to ride, but if I can own a piece of that, that would be that would be something. And I bought it and it is section 206 of 250. They only made 250 of these plaques and it comes with a certificate of authenticity and I am just really glad to have it. It looks great. <laughs> I think one of the coolest parts about this industry and I think this is why the museum ultimately will be really popular is that we all actually experienced it and we have the opportunity to own pieces of it. There's not mm. many places where you can go that they'll, you know, sell you used stuff for rides that don't exist anymore. But this industry can do that because there is such a cool fan culture that's built around it that yes, I would love to win a Schwarzkopf wheel and hub. Yeah. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, a park would just say, well, why don't we just recycle this? Don't trust us. There's a reason. <laughs> you got to check out these fans. They, they're they on a whole nother level. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, host, Chris, is there an artifact that you would like to see the museum acquire? Well, other than maybe when we get, unfortunately, closure announcements of coasters here and there, uh, there's one thing that comes to mind that I think... I don't know how feasible it is to get it to Texas, but there is still a piece of track from Great American Scream Machine that's now part of 
the safari at Six Flags Great Adventure, and it's the top of one of the loops. And I, I just think, wow, that would be a great addition to the museum, maybe as a, a, a fancy entrance or something like that. But uh, I have no idea what the logistics behind that are, or even procuring that. But that's something that came to mind when I thought of this question. That would make an awesome entrance. And I don't know what the museum has planned in terms of finding artifacts like track pieces and whatnot. But if we can save a huge section of Texas Cyclone, you know, the sky could probably be the limit when it comes to <laughs> track and whatnot. It's just a matter of being able, like you said, to find a way to get it to Texas. And then what do you do after that? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, what about you, Dalton? What do you have your eye on? Well, I've thought about this too. I think I'm going to go with the home park, a park very close to me. I'm going to go with Silver Dollar City. I think the museum needs to somehow, if they could, acquire a piece of scenery that's used at Silver Dollar City. It is one of the original Buzzsaw Fall cars, Buzzsaw Falls, on, on Powder Keg. It's actually above the queue line. It looks like it's been thrown in there, like it's exploded. But if you ever ride that ride, that is the original car from this, this premier um, liquid coaster, only one of two ever built, I believe. There's only one left, and it's, I believe it's, it's over east somewhere. It's across the pond. We'll use, we'll use that again. Um, but that would be great because um, not only was riding that extremely special, this was a, you know, log flume roller coaster hybrid, essentially, one of the very first ones, kind of a proof of concept. Um, but to have that, I think it would just it looks so strikingly different from a normal car, in my opinion. And so to have that with the theming, and I think they've got Silver Dollar City on the front um, to show that that park had always been kind of, you know, kind of on the cutting edge. They have a lot of records they break. And so to also have this old school theme with it with the 1880s, I think that'd be pretty cool. Cool mix of things. Definitely. That would be a put that one. That would be great. But it's scenery now, so I don't know how apt they would be to give you a piece of scenery because it is used as active theming in the park. So that's probably my answer, I would say. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, Chris, do you have any interesting stories you want to tell us? I mean, we've heard so many interesting stories already, it seems like. Is there one that sticks out to you? Like, you know, maybe the talked about the first time you went there, but was there another time you went that really stuck out to you? Was there... Maybe, you know, I think what would be cool is if I went with somebody who um, had been on this ride before that I hadn't, and I could relive that ride through maybe their telling of it. I don't know what that question would mean to you, but anything stick out to you at all? You know, yeah, the last time that I went out there, which was about two months ago, flew in the Friday night, got up early Saturday morning, and the wind was absolutely howling. I mean, we are talking a really decent dust storm type of wind and the whole sky was just brown Ooh. which was a new experience for me <laughs> uh, it also was below freezing so it was a cold dusty day mm. and there was gusting to 50 to 60 miles an hour and we're in the museum gary is working on organizing blueprints and I was working on washing the ride vehicles. And thankfully, the bathrooms had been done the, since the last time that I went there. So we had hot running water in the museum. So I was able to wash the cars with this, with nice warm water, which was lovely. But the wind was howling, 
just howling outside and you could hear it as it's, you know, it's hitting the building and it just made you appreciate just how well built that thing is (laughs) (laughs) that you didn't have to worry about this, these gusts of wind coming in. This isn't just a shed clarification. Yeah. It's not just this shed in the middle of nowhere. It's it's, this thing is for real and they've, it's going to be nice and cool in the summer. Once the air conditioning gets put in, it's going to be a really cool thing for plain view to have, but I think more importantly for the industry to have, yes, it's not near an international airport. I get that. But at the same time, the opportunity to be able to grow in that place for however long it was going to take to raise the money for it and to be able to potentially expand someday because the collection is only going to get larger as time goes on. I think that was an opportunity that the board really could not pass up. And I think that it makes sense when you look at it from that perspective. Plus it gives you an excuse to go out to West Texas and visit two little cool family amusement parks that most people have probably seen maybe in a book and that's about it. So you get to have that experience that let's be honest with all the other corporate parks that are around, it's becoming a more rare experience. Yeah. It's so vitally important to anyone listening and dear listener, um, really that you visit these small parks because they are in a way the beginning of this industry. We, we didn't just start with these corporate parks. You know, that is a, that is a, that is a child of hard work and dedication that's put in, that's been put in for many years before us. And it still continues to this day. And those are two parks. You're totally right. That, um, that gives me a reason to want to go there. I mean, personally is because I can bundle that in with something else. And so I think that's vitally important. Um, yeah, Texas barbecue. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's right. Second only to Kansas City barbecue, but that's a different uh, discussion for a different uh, that day. That could be a whole other podcast. Uh, and right, then, right, don't right. forget though, you've also got Paladuro Canyon, the largest canyon in the United States, if you don't count the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and that's on the way to from the museum to uh, Amarillo in Wonderland. So you've got about a natural distraction that you can put in there as well. Now, are there any? Um, there's a temporary museum that you had visited that you told us about because I haven't been there and, and, and Chris, obviously you, you volunteer with the museum. I haven't seen any of this. And what is this thing you're talking about? Was this like a temporary thing that would go around or is this a traveling exhibit? What was that? Uh, yes. When I visited Dollywood in 2013, uh, it was my first visit to the park, but more than the other coasters, uh, that I had on my list to check off, uh, there was the exhibit of this this National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. They had a, a temporary exhibit at the park, and it wasn't just small things that maybe could fit into a car. They had major pieces like the, the Big Bad Wolf car as well. And um, I, I it wasn't the first thing I did at the park that day, but uh, when it, when right around noon, I started asking around, when is the museum going to open? When is it going to open? So, oh, I don't know if it's open in a day. That's what they told me. And I started to get a little scared. But then I, I sort of just waited around, and eventually I saw someone walk up with some keys, and uh, they opened it up. And I spent probably at least two hours in there just looking at everything, taking pictures, reading all of the inscriptions, and it really did whet my appetite for the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives, and I can't wait to get down to West Texas when this museum opens and really see all the big stuff that they couldn't even put in Dollywood. 
So Chris experienced this in Dollywood, and like we've been saying, it's now in West Texas. You're talking about you fly in there, Chris. How would somebody get there? You're talking about the highway. If somebody wanted to go, and obviously they can't see it now, when it does open, how will people get to it? Because you said there's no international airport. That's true. Plainview does not have an international airport. Thankfully, Amarillo and Lubbock do. And there's plenty of connections out of DFW and Dallas uh, Love Field via Southwest, American, etc. The you're driving through the area. It's Interstate 27 that connects both Amarillo and Lubbock. And it's just off the highway. If you take Interstate 27 into Plainview and you'll just be able to once we're ready and, and actually open to the public, look up uh, National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives and that will be how you get there. And so while we can't get there now, um, where else can we get connected with the museum? I'm sure there's plenty of social accounts. That's where I've seen most of the pictures. You're on Facebook, of course. Yes. So you can find the National Roller Coaster Museum all over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we just recently announced a YouTube channel as well. So for YouTube, just look up National Roller Coaster Museum. Uh, same thing with Facebook. Uh, Twitter, we're at Coaster Museum. And Instagram, we're at Roller Coaster Museum. And what can people expect? Because, you know, at least with our social accounts, we do a little bit of different things on each one. Is it kind of the same thing across the board? Or do we have reasons to go on each one? You'll have reasons to go on each one. The YouTube channel is going to have, of course, all of our video content, which we're hoping to bring out a lot more in the coming weeks. And then the, your other accounts, we focus on both photos and videos. And it can run the gamut from hey, here's a quick shot of Shockwave from King's Dominion. There it is. Or as we did recently, here's a teaser video of the topographic map of Tennessee Tornado that, yes, has the original ending to that ride at Dollywood that no one's really seen. Uh, I had to actually thank Pete Owens, uh, who is the PR manager up at Dollywood, for alerting me to that because I didn't realize the museum had it. And he was on the Ride With Us podcast for the American Coaster Enthusiast, and he dropped a line and said, oh, yeah, by the way, the museum's got the old topographic map that's got the original ending. And I told him, do you hear that sound? That's like a bunch <laughs> of enthusiasts typing, <laughs> trying to figure out what the original layout was supposed to look like. So at some point, we will reveal that, but we're just not sure when yet. Yeah, that ride does slam into the brakes. It, so. it certainly it does. <laughs> hmm. So... National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. You're on that social media. You're on the Ride With Us podcast with Ace. That's the American Coaster Enthusiasts uh, here in the States. And also internationally, they do some trips as well. Um, that's where they can also hear you. Um, you know, really final question for you, Chris. How can we support the museum? I think this is the question that we get more than any others besides when are you opening? And those two kind of go hand in hand. The museum has always relied on the support of the fans and the industry in order to be able to survive. No one's paid on the board. You know, it's all volunteer and it's all for the love and passion of it. So the best way to help support the museum, not only to like comment, subscribe on all their social media channels, but if you're able to, I know times are tough right now, but if you're able to give some money to them, you can just go to rollercoastermuseum.org slash donate and donate whatever you'd like to the museum. You can also, through Facebook, they run donation campaigns every now and then too. You can just click that donate button and 100% of the proceeds goes to the museum to bring it to life and to give you all the experience that I've been blessed enough to be able to do just going out there and photographing those vehicles, except you'll have the opportunity to actually 
experience them in the way they were originally intended, which was on display to learn about their history and to be able to appreciate it that much more. So rollercoastermuseum.org, rollercoastermuseum.org slash donate. Uh, either of those will obviously get you to the donate. Facebook, check out donate when they're doing a campaign there. Um, yeah, that's definitely a, a great way to do it. Um, Chris, we appreciate you being on the podcast with us here at Corkscrew Combos. We're, we're glad you could join us. We're glad that you could be a part of this. Uh, we definitely learned something. I'm going to learn, uh, going to remember 33 inches <laughs> yes. is the typical gauge of a PTC roller coaster for the rest of my life. Um, I hope maybe you learned something from us. Probably not. Uh, but <laughs> we're glad that you could be with us. And I'm sure our listeners are as well. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me on. And thank you all for, for listening to the podcast and for helping to support the museum in whatever way you all can. Uh, it's greatly appreciated and really appreciate all the work that you all are doing on this as well. Really, thank you very much. And rollercoastermuseum.org slash donate. Dear listener, we've never asked for money or anything on this podcast, but if you're looking to put your money somewhere to do some good with preservation of something that you really care about, here it is. Absolutely. That was Chris Roberry with the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives, and also the Ride With Us podcast with Ace. Glad to have him around, and hopefully we'll have him on here in a few future episodes down the road. Wow, that was great. That was really fun, DJ. It definitely was. And it is time to hit the brakes. But we're not done yet. That's right. We just had our second guest on the show. But if you want to leave your mark on the show, if you want to have a corkscrew conversation with us, there are many ways that you can do that. That's right. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, as well as even email, if you want to consider that social media these days. I, sometimes receiving a nice uh, cold email from somebody just feels a little bit different these days. It's starting to become like the novelty of receiving a letter in the mail. But if you want to talk to us on Facebook, that's Corkscrew Combos. Same at Twitter, Instagram, Corkscrew.Convos. Uh, and we do different, different things on every platform. Yes, there is a reason to follow the show on each of these platforms, because we maybe get memes on Twitter. I do consider myself a an up-and-coming meme smith. Meme connoisseur. Uh, a, yeah, a purveyor of memes. Milady, yes. <laughs> uh, we, we, like, we like to post pretty pictures on Instagram that we've taken. Uh, we are running out of those, so I hope we can get to another park soon to take more pictures. Uh, and then maybe interesting articles maybe in discussions on facebook there's a reason to follow the show on each of these platforms so go ahead and do it absolutely and if you have a question for us if you even have some feedback for us it's great to dm us on all those locations but don't forget email corkscrewcombos at gmail.com you can talk to us there a little bit more long form and we can have what we would consider a real corkscrew conversation and uh, we're getting ready again for the uh, 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 end of this episode here, but it's important to also point out how valuable it is to subscribe or follow this show. You know, it's funny that you use that word subscribe, because we are, are going to have to take that word out of our vocabulary. I you know read an article on this yeah. today. Yes, yeah. this is interesting. Because, Go ahead. Go ahead. Because on Apple, with the Apple Podcast platform, they are changing the term for subscribing to a podcast where you get their episodes in your cultivated feed on the homepage of your Apple Podcast application 
they're changing the word from subscribe to follow because apparently there's a connotation that you have to pay for a subscription with podcasts, which is not the case. It's free to follow Corkscrew Convos. It's free to put this in your ears. But they're changing the word, so pretty soon we're just going to have to say follow the show. That's already what it is on Spotify, so follow it on Apple Podcasts too. Yeah, definitely follow it. It's funny, when I read that study, I remember in 2005 when I used YouTube you know, for like the first year and I was, I was younger back then and you could subscribe. I was so afraid to click it. Cause I'm like, I don't want to pay money to do this, but you never, you never had to. And you never had to pay money to corkscrew combos. That's totally right. So thanks for pointing that out, Chris. Definitely follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, and also if you're on Apple while you're there, leave us a five-star review. We definitely appreciate it or any review, uh, but we'd love to get that five-star review. And if you, if you do write something, we will read it aloud. We promise we've done that before. We'll give you a shout out right here on the show we've we've read a few in the past so uh, definitely put it there and we will read that and also be sure to check out twitch i'm over there dj Fourfire. also asking for a follow subscribing on twitch is a whole different animal that is different tier <laughs> subscriptions it's like patreon not into it right now but check me out um chris i've actually done done something on my twitch two times since our last podcast maybe three times so we'll keep yeah, it going I- I was watching on one of your streams, you put a an inverted coaster with a very tight layout and a very compact spot in your park, and that was interesting to see how you design, because you approach it differently than I do, and uh, maybe someday when I get my technology squared away and when I can stream, uh, I'll do my own thing on Twitch or YouTube or whatever, but... You have a different build process than I do. I sort of put it out there and see what sticks and then move it so that it's more pretty. But you, you're you more deliberate, and I like that. But it is interesting. DJ for fire on Twitch. DJ F-O-U-R-F-I-R-E. And it's a good time. It's a good time. And thank you for pointing that out. I wish if people would watch, if you're listening and you decide to watch, do me a favor and and talk to me. I get a lot of viewers on there. I say a lot. I don't, it's not like I have hundreds of viewers, but sometimes I'll get, you know, a decent amount of people on there and no one says anything. And so I kind of feel like you do, you do, (laughs) but you have to, you're, you're, you're the main host of course through combos. You have to. So, but while, while I'm on there, you know, I, I like to build and it's interesting. You say you enjoy my process, but I love it when people I'm halfway through a ride and someone's like, all right, put this in there. And then I like to think like an engineer, you know, like, okay, how, how, how would I do that? So yeah, thanks for pointing that out. We actually finished that coaster on the last, the last time I got on there. So it's in a good place. Oh, very cool. That does sound like a great time. Uh, let me know next time you're streaming. I will be there. I will be commenting in the comment section, getting those comments started. That's what I do best. But until next time, my name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And this has been another Corkscrew Convo. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. If you would like to support the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives, be sure to visit rollercoastermuseum.org donate, and you can be a part of history. Thank you.